0: This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host,
1: Pat McMahon. Uh, wait, Robin, excuse me, I'm terribly sorry. That That's a perfectly appropriate theme song for every other God Show, but not this one. We've got to have special music. <laughs> ¶¶ And this is John Patrick Michael McMahon, whose grandparents came from County Clare and who is delighted that on this program, this very special God Show, we're going to be taking a look at St. Patrick of Ireland. Uh, hold on just a moment. Yes, the uh, the folks who live in all those other places around the planet... Uh, it's perfectly all. Right. You don't have to be Irish to deeply appreciate this hour, because you're going to find out about St. Patrick. You're going to find out a little bit of behind the scenes uh, of the island itself, and you're going to find out all that information from Philip Freeman, uh, whose background is as an academic, has written so many books, one of them being St. Patrick of Ireland. The most recent, uh, Philip, this is the time when you do your own commercial. So, as I welcome you, oh,
0: okay. as I welcome
1: you to the God Show, tell everybody about the most recent book.
0: Oh well, thanks very much. Uh, the most recent book is a translation of uh, Cicero, the Roman uh, writer and orator Cicero. He wrote a book called "How to Think About God," uh, and I translated that for Princeton University Press uh, just this last
1: year. Well, we're delighted to let everybody else know that that's available. St. Patrick of Ireland was written a number of years ago, and I will ask you now, since it's not o Freeman, why? Why did, were you drawn uh, to this personality and this life?
0: Yeah, well, my name is Freeman, which is as English as it goes, and my ancestors came from around Oxford, but some of my ancestors were actually Irish uh and so uh they i uh, i was always interested in Ireland it's uh, actually the first place i remember in my life uh we uh, my father was in the air force and we landed in Ireland on the way to uh germany uh where he was stationed but but mostly the the reason is is i was just fascinated by the mythology by the stories the traditional tales uh of Ireland and that's what got me interested uh way back as an undergraduate in college And I just pursued that interest, and uh, I I went to graduate school, and uh, I studied classics, Greek and Latin, but I also studied uh, Celtic studies uh, as well. Uh, And so I just got uh, learned more and more uh, over the years, and it's just gotten uh, more and more interesting to me.
1: And uh, I should remind everybody that updating the life of Philip Freeman is also a professor of humanities currently at Pepperdine University, highly respected uh, educational institution. Uh, But we're going to be really focusing on not just Ireland and its culture, but also St. Patrick particularly. Before we get into the history and before we get into the biography, Philip, please answer this question from a lifelong Irishman. And I've never been able... To really clearly understand myself, why all nationalities, all races, all religions, at least primarily in this country and a few others, celebrate this saint and this culture on March the 17th, forgetting almost totally about St. Aloysius, about St. Ludwig. about all of those other saints representing other ethnic groups. What is it that causes people of all backgrounds to wear the green on March the 17th?
0: Well, it's really interesting. For centuries, many, many centuries, St. Patrick's Day was just a very minor holiday in Ireland, a religious holiday. But St. Patrick's Day, as we know it now, was really born in America. Uh, And it was born with the immigrants who came over in the 1800s to New York and to Boston and to Chicago uh, and to other places. And uh, it was these immigrants, these thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of immigrants who came over, mostly poor, uh, who were looking back at the old country. They wanted to remember. They wanted to be proud. So they started having parades in Boston and, and, and elsewhere, and, uh, and they, they had these parades, and other people over time just wanted to join in. So um, it was really, it spread from the Irish immigrants in the big cities of America out to the rest of the land. And, and now it's interesting, uh, when I first went to Ireland back in the 1980s, St. Patrick's Day was a very small deal there. They have re-imported St. Patrick's Day from America <laughs> so that uh, you go to Dublin uh, in a week or two, and it's, uh, it's now a very um, loud, uh, brash American holiday.
1: Yes, economically and fiscally successful for one and all.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Philip Freeman talking to us about St. Patrick of Ireland. Is the book still available?
0: Oh, yes, it's still in print, and you can buy it at a bookstore or online, uh, anywhere
1: you'd like. Well, right now, someone is listening to us in Galway. And uh, just because they happen to be Irish, living on the Emerald Isle, uh, they don't necessarily know everything about Patrick himself. Or Padraig, I believe, as it is spelled and pronounced in Irish or Gaelic. His origins. It is. Let's start, if you will, uh, Philip, by talking about Patrick from the beginning.
0: Sure. Well, the thing to know about Patrick, first of all, is he was not Irish. He was not born in Ireland. Uh, He was actually born in what's now Britain, uh, and he was a Roman citizen. He lived at the very end of the Roman Empire, uh, somewhere probably on the western coast of Britain, uh, while it was still ruled by the Romans, while there were still legions uh, living there. Uh, He was born maybe about the year 400, maybe a little bit before that. It's hard to know. Uh, But he was born into a, a wealthy family. Uh, his grandfather was a Christian priest. His father was a deacon. Uh, he uh, They had a country house. They had a city house. Uh, so they had a lot of money, servants, slaves, uh, all of that. Uh, so he came from a, a very uh, affluent family uh, in the latter part of the Roman Empire in Britain.
1: So here we have now people all over the world listening to this broadcast, international as it is, discovering for the first time that beloved St. Patrick is not only a Brit, but he came from Italian families.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, uh, I mean, he was, uh, he probably grew up, I mean, he grew up as a Roman from Britain. He, I'm sure he spoke Latin. He probably spoke British. And I mean, if you want to, uh, you know, attach a sort of a modern uh, uh, name to him, uh, to his ethnic group, probably Welsh would be about the closest thing that he was. He probably spoke a Celtic language related to Welsh, but he, uh, uh, he 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 grew up there and he was there for about fifteen or sixteen years. Um, uh, he uh, was an interesting um, uh, young man. He was, uh, I think, certainly a spoiled young man, and he also says that from a very early time he rejected the Christianity that his family had taught him. So he was, he said, from his childhood, he was an atheist.
1: What else do we know about Saint Patrick? during those developmental days
0: well we know uh he says later that he committed some terrible sin probably when he was about 15 years old which we don't know what the sin was but it got him in trouble later on uh, as an old man Uh, we also know that he was kidnapped when he was about 16 years old Uh, he was at his family's country villa somewhere on the western coast of Britain, when Irish pirates, uh, slave raiders came, and they came to his villa, and they killed some people, and they took some away, including him, uh, back to Ireland to sell him into slavery. Uh, and so that's how he got to Ireland the first time, was being sold as a slave. Uh, we don't know exactly where. I'm, I'm, I think probably somewhere around County Mayo uh, out in the west, but he uh, was a slave for about seven years in Ireland, uh, living in just miserable conditions. He says it was cold and rainy, and uh, and he was taking care of sheep the whole time. And uh, it was just a, a miserable sort of life that he was living. And it was during this time that he turned back to his childhood religion. He turned back to Christianity and began to pray uh, and became a devout Christian uh, praying to God for, for guidance and for help,
1: but was that common in those days that is piracy uh, kidnapping somebody into slavery i don 't read anything in your book about the fact that a ransom was asked
0: no they didn't they weren 't interested in a ransom; they just wanted uh, slaves to work, uh, herding sheep or taking care of the house or uh, doing whatever they needed uh, doing. Uh, Patrick, uh, When Patrick was taken away to Ireland, there was no thought of, of ransoming, ransoming him. He was uh, Nobody ever escaped Ireland. Nobody ever left. Uh, so he was, uh, he was there, uh, he thought, for the rest of his life uh, in uh, pretty uh, brutal slavery. Uh, until, one day, he had a dream. Uh, and in this dream, God told him, uh, after seven years of being a slave, that it was time to go. It was time to get up and uh, to go back uh, to Britain and escape from Ireland. And he had this dream a couple of times. And then finally he listened and he said that he fled all the way across Ireland uh, and he found a ship uh, that was uh, sailing off of Ireland, probably full of merchants. And they took him eventually back to Britain where he uh, found his family again.
1: These stories almost seem as if they come out of Netflix Uh, We're talking about something that really is dramatic, uh, anecdotally, uh, story after story after story. uh, And how do we know they're true?
0: Well, we are very fortunate. We have two letters that Patrick himself wrote later when he was an old man. He wrote these letters, and we still have copies of them uh, there. Uh, you can go to the uh, uh, the library at uh, Trinity College, uh, right next to the Book of Kells. Uh, there's another book there called the Book of Armagh, and that contains one of the letters of Patrick. And other libraries contain uh, the uh, copies of the other one. And, and in these two letters, what Patrick wrote himself, he talks about his life. Uh, he tells us uh, it's a, a biographical, uh, it's a it's a religious, it's a spiritual journey, like Saint Augustine's Confessions. Uh, where he talks about all of this, uh, and they're not very long letters, but they are—they're um, really just unique. Uh, we don't have anything else like them from the ancient world, uh, and I think they are a pretty good source of uh, about the life of this man.
1: But Philip, even his early years—it—it it really does sound uh, like a continuing drama on television, uh, because of, <laughs> of, of where where he came from, his origins, his background. His education, and then being sold into slavery, and then escaping slavery, which doesn't happen apparently very often, and going back no. to his family.
0: Right. Uh, he, uh, I mean, it really would make a good Netflix series uh, one of these days. Uh, but, he, uh, but he made it all the way back to his family. Uh, they welcomed him. They you know, assumed that he had died long before because nobody ever escaped from Ireland. It, just, it was impossible, but he did. Uh, and he goes back, and once he's back with his family, once he's living uh, a life of luxury again uh, on the villa, then he has more dreams. Uh, and in the dreams he has God calling him to go back to Ireland and to preach Christianity to the Irish people. And after resisting the idea for a while, Patrick says, okay. Uh, And he uh, gets training as a priest, and then eventually he goes back to Ireland as a missionary for the rest
1: of his life. What was seminary life like? You said training as a priest, uh, and it seems the clergy then was dramatically different in its preparation. It was.
0: uh, There were no seminaries like we know them today. So if somebody wanted to be a priest, what they would do would be go to uh, a a, a bishop. Uh, They would go to London or York or one of the places that had a bishop, uh, or he could have gone overseas. We really don't know, uh, but you would attach yourself to a bishop, and then you would, uh, it would be like an internship for several years, and you would study scripture, you would study theology, uh, you would learn the sacraments of the church, uh, and that is how uh, you. And eventually you were ordained, and, and you got to be a priest.
1: Did I read in your book, St. Patrick of Ireland, that his grandfather was a bishop?
0: His grandfather was a priest, uh, not a bishop, but a, a Christian priest,
1: mm-hmm. and his
0: father was deacon, which is you know one order down, but uh, still a very important position in the church.
1: I'm assuming celibacy was not a vow that was taken at that time.
0: It wasn't. There were there were, of course. Um, Priests who were uh, celibate, and uh, Patrick uh, never mentions having a wife, so uh, it seems like, and he was actually promoting celibacy among uh, monks and nuns in Ireland, so it seems very likely that, it, that he was celibate, but it wasn't required at that time period.
1: So there he was with his family uh, in a privileged position, and not only privileged by way of the uh, comfortable level of his life with his family in Britain, but also privileged because he was in a position of some authority as a priest. Then what?
0: Then he went back to Ireland. uh, And uh, we don't have, uh, we only know a little bit about that period of his life, but, but he went back to Ireland and he began preaching. And it was a very difficult situation. Ireland was not a united country. It was made up of Maybe 150 different tribes with 150 kings. So in order for Patrick to preach, he had to go to each king and offer gifts probably and say, you know, uh, may I have permission to preach with your people? Uh, And so that's what he did. It was a very difficult position. He writes that uh, there were times where he was beaten. uh, He was treated very badly. uh, So he certainly suffered, uh, but he persevered, and he did this for years. Uh, And eventually, um, he helped to spread the gospel in Ireland. There were actually Christian missionaries in Ireland before Patrick. He was not the first Christian there. But uh, Patrick uh, did a lot of good work, probably up in the north. Uh, probably in the area south of Belfast and in, in in that area, mm. uh, but he he worked very hard uh, and um, and preached Christianity in Ireland for a long time.
1: Well, it was kind of a uh, an edgy position to be in anyway, because we're talking about a period of time where uh, great violence uh, was fairly common everywhere you went, and that includes oh, it... violence toward the religious too, right, Philip?
0: Oh, absolutely! There was no—you uh, were not immune from violence. And, and Patrick says that he was beaten. He was uh, kidnapped again. Uh, he went through all sorts of stuff, and and it was a violent time. That's that's what I tell my students when I talk about Greece and Rome and Ireland. Uh, it's it's hard for most of us to appreciate just how dangerous it was to be alive uh, in those days, and just how uncertain life was. Uh, violence, starvation, disease—they uh, were everywhere. Uh, But Patrick um, faced all of it. He could have stayed home uh, and led a very comfortable life in Britain. But he decided uh, to listen to the voice in the dreams and to go back to Ireland.
1: But besides starvation and disease, also fairly common, people with large examples of cutlery on their uh, bodies uh, who would decide whether they agreed with you philosophically or wanted to rob you. I mean, killings were common. Oh,
0: yes, Uh, it was very common. And the thing is, if you were not Irish, if you were not under the protection of a king, then you had no legal rights. Uh, So Patrick had to bribe the kings in order to uh, so that their sons or somebody would come with him and offer protection to him as he moved around the country. Uh, the Irish, uh, the Irish were—they uh, were always fighting. They were always going to war with each other. Uh, the Celtic warriors, the Irish warriors, were well known uh, for being a very brave and very violent people. Uh, so Patrick had to maneuver. He had to work through all of this. But he had a great advantage that the other missionaries didn't—in that he knew the language uh, and he knew the culture and he knew how it worked. Uh, we have stories of uh, earlier missionaries just a few years earlier who didn't last very long because they couldn't figure out this crazy island uh, about how <laughs> things worked. But Patrick did, Patrick knew. Uh, Patrick could go and, and, and have a pint of Guinness and, well, he couldn't do that but it wasn't invented <laughs> yet, but but he knew, he knew how to work with the people.
1: It was the equivalent of a pint of Guinness. Um,
0: yes, indeed, yes.
1: Uh, all right, but um, in those days... And you said he spoke the language. The language was Celtic. Was yeah, Celtic.
0: Uh, we call it Gaelic today, Irish, old Irish. Uh, yeah, it was a Celtic language.
1: All right, with all of the superstitions, all of the stories, all the legends springing up out of that whole period of time—not just around St. Patrick, and not just around Catholic saints in general, but uh, the uh, the the culture and the uh as As you know, because you've written about the mythology of Ireland uh it's a part of virtually every family's life then and now. But one of the stories that won't go away is about Saint Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. Now, were they snakes or attorneys? <laughs>
0: Uh, that's that, pretty much the same thing, I guess. But uh, uh, actually, that's a great story that comes up about Patrick, but it comes along hundreds of years after his death. There actually have never been any snakes in Ireland. I, uh, I was in Dublin, actually, last week at the Natural History Museum. All the animals of Ireland there, and not a single snake. Uh, but uh, w- this story comes along later, and it's symbolic. What Patrick did was uh, symbolically drive evil, the evil old ways uh, oh. out of Ireland. So. So, I'm afraid the the snake story isn't true.
1: when, my Irish cousins visited me here in Arizona, uh, whenever we went to any um historical location, there were signs particularly out in the in the desert. There were signs along the sidewalk, just simply saying, "Stay on the sidewalk," and be aware." that this is the natural habitat of reptiles. The minute <laughs> yeah. my cousins saw the sign with just a drawn, simple picture, a line drawing of a snake, they wouldn't go any further, right. Philip.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, uh, uh, the, the Irish are totally unfamiliar with snakes. That's true.
1: And when one of them went out into my backyard in the middle of a large urban community, Phoenix, and they saw truly, they saw at dusk a coiled water hose. They would not go out anymore until we showed them that this was oh, just simply funny. right part, part of the gardening process in America. <laughs> but, but people still feel that way, don't they?
0: Yeah, yeah, they do. There's something about snakes in our minds. Uh, you know, the story of Genesis and the Garden of Eden or or the story of Gilgamesh and he, you know, the snake steals eternal life from him. There's just something in our subconscious that doesn't like snakes.
1: There doesn't seem to be now that I think of it, um, uh, even in the comic book heroes any heroic uh or positive snake image that I can recall.
0: No. No, there really isn't. They are always pretty much evil in our in our way of thinking, Christian we're, or not.
1: We're talking to Philip Freeman, the author of so many books, including St. Patrick of Ireland. He's a professor of humanities at Pepperdine University in California. Well, we we talked about the fact that he had a pretty rough beginning with this kidnapping into a slave unit, and then finally escaping them and returning to his family, but after a period of time with his family uh, in, in uh, England, he decided to go back to Ireland. Why was that? What was the call, and why did this, this particular individual make that kind of transition in his life?
0: I mean, it was amazing when you read what he says himself. Uh, he, he, he did not want to go to Ireland. He was very reluctant, but he really felt that it was a call of God in a way that I think that's hard for most of us to understand, that he really felt that God was expecting him, calling him uh, to come back to Ireland. And in, in his dream, he uh, opens a letter, uh, and it says the voice of the Irish is, is calling him back. And so uh, he, he really felt Uh, a a great compassion, I think, uh, for the suffering that he saw there. Uh, He talks uh, repeatedly in his letters uh, about fellow slaves, uh, especially about women, uh, the slaves who were women who were treated very badly. Uh, And he wanted to go back and preach Christianity. He wanted to go back and and help uh, the Christians that were already there. Uh, It was truly just a a, a call from God uh, that that drove him back.
1: Well, women in those days wherever you were, uh, seemed to really have short shrift when it comes to advancing to any position of authority.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, In in the Celtic world, it was actually better than the Greek and Roman world. Women had more rights uh, than they did uh, among the the Romans, for example. But still, it was very much a man's world. And, And sometimes you will see people uh, trying to look back on the Celtic Golden Age as a time when men and women were equal. But unfortunately, there's no really good evidence for that. Uh, it was always a man's world. But but in the Celtic world, in the Irish world, uh, women did have rights. Uh, they could get divorced. Uh, much more easily uh, than uh, than in Rome or in Greece. Uh, if a you know if a, if, a, if a husband became too fat, for example, that was grounds for a woman to divorce him. <laughs> she could uh, she could do it. Uh, so there were certain rights that were better as a woman, but uh, but in general, it was a really a, a tough world for females.
1: Saint Patrick's mission, going back to Ireland, was it originally his intent? Uh, to uh, introduce Christianity, or were there other reasons? I think it really was uh, to preach the
0: gospel, uh, to introduce Christianity. I think uh, he went there uh, and, and... just wanted to spread the Christian religion. And in his letter that he writes, uh we have uh he, he tells what he believes. He gives a short creed. And it's really basically the same Nicene Creed that people say every Sunday in Mass or uh in a Lutheran church or an Episcopal church. It's uh it's it's basic plain vanilla Christianity. But he uh, uh he, he felt compelled to preach this and I think that was his motivation, and he felt great compassion too uh, for the people. Uh, but it really was to work as a missionary, spreading the gospel.
1: How successful was he? In the Catholic Church, uh, we always hear about Saint Patrick converted Ireland, as if <laughs> there was a gigantic movement that took place, and in a week and a half, everybody was uh, was uh, everybody in Ireland was uh, a Christian. Did't work out quite now
0: didn't work that way. He was there for maybe 30 years. And, uh, you know, I, I think he, he converted maybe a, a few hundred or a few thousand people eventually. But uh, it, Ireland, uh, there were still Druids in Ireland for, you know, two, three hundred years after Patrick was there. The uh, conversion to Christianity was a slow process. And Patrick certainly did not convert the whole I- uh, island of Ireland to Christianity at all. Uh, we know the names of other missionaries down in the south. Uh, working, but uh, but even then, it took a long time uh, for Christianity to spread throughout Ireland.
1: All right, but let's talk about Christianity versus the Celtic beliefs. Uh, those were deeply uh, embedded in the culture before Christianity raised its head in Ireland. Strong beliefs, and many of them, isn't that true, Philip?
0: Oh, absolutely! the The Irish were a very religious people, and so when, when they believed uh, Celtic religion, Irish religion before Christianity was uh, it was polytheistic. So there were lots of different gods, just like there were among the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, uh, the 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 Celts uh, very much uh, each each and every place, every hill, every spring, every river had a god. Uh, that was associated with it. So uh, when Patrick went back to Ireland, his toughest, his first thing he had to do was to preach the idea of a single God. And that, uh, to us, you know, coming from the modern world, whether we're religious or not, you know, that's a fairly easy idea. Okay, there's there's one God. But for the Irish, that was such a foreign notion. Uh, and Patrick had to first convince them that there was just one God. Uh, and um, their religion... Um, it, the, the one important aspect of Celtic religion in the, that Patrick ran into I'm sure was the idea of the other world uh, this is an idea that comes up in Celtic uh, mythology all the time that there is this other world of call it the world of the fairies if you want uh, mm-hmm. the world of the god the world of magic that exists parallel to our own uh, and that it's just right there and there are certain times and places where you can cross from our world into that world. Uh, one of those times would be Halloween. That's when the, the, the veil is thinnest between our two worlds. And, uh, and so Patrick, it was a rich, uh, rich belief system that the Irish had uh, that Patrick um, worked with. Uh, I'm sure he didn't come in and, and try to offend anybody. Uh, he, I'm sure he found elements of truth that were compatible with Christianity in, in Celtic religion. But, uh, but he really was preaching a, a, a very new way of thinking about God.
1: Was it a pagan society?
0: Yes, it was. I mean, pagan in the sense of, of not being Christian, not being Jewish, not being Islamic. Uh, they, they, uh, you know, they believed in lots of different gods. Uh, they had sacrifices. Uh, the Druids were very important. The Druids were the priests of the Celts. Uh, they were a professional and very respected class of people uh, that uh, that became uh, some of them. You now, eventually, became Christians, uh, but they were uh, they were their own particular uh, religion before that.
1: Every time I ever hear the word druid, I immediately associate it with Stonehenge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that to me that is the last remaining. Um, architectural uh, symbol of the Druid faith. And I don't know whether that's because of uh, tourist pamphlets that I've read or if there's some truth to that.
0: Well, uh, it's certainly the place where modern Druids like to gather together on the winter solstice. But there, you know, honestly, there's no evidence linking Stonehenge with the Druids at all. Well, who were they? Uh, Stonehenge was... Uh, th- who who built Stonehenge? Or no, who, who, were the
1: who were the Druids? What did they do? What kind of religion was that uh, in the world of Saint Patrick?
0: Right. Well, they were the they were the priestly class. They were the ones like you know we have priests in the Catholic Church or ministers in Protestant churches. That's what the Druids were in Celtic religion. They were the ones who. Uh, did the sacrifices. They were the ones who interpreted the will of the gods. They were the ones who uh, sang songs of glorious ancestors. They were the ones who watched the heavens. Uh, They were a professional and very well-trained class of priests, and they could be either men or women.
1: So unlike then the Greeks and the Romans with Zeus uh, and Jupiter as the head guys of those uh, religious groups and Way of thinking, uh, there wasn't any big time number one El Presidente uh, guy. <laughs> well, there was
0: actually. Uh, they, they had a, the, uh, all across the Celtic lands of Europe and Britain and Ireland. There was a god named Lugos uh, in Irish. He's called Lug, uh, and he was uh, the greatest of the gods, uh, but but not that much greater than the others. Uh, he was uh, a god of of, of craftsmanship, a god of, uh, of skills, and uh, very different from Zeus or Jupiter, but still uh, but there were many, many other gods uh, in Irish religion and uh, goddesses, too.
1: D- did you find, as you were researching uh, St. Patrick of Ireland, the book that we're talking about today uh, with Philip Freeman, the author, uh, did you find it an effort, uh, particularly because you were the author of so many books, was it an exceptional effort to research this book?
0: Well, it, there wasn't a lot of material there in some senses. Uh, in, in another sense, what I did was basically take the two letters that Patrick wrote and made that the foundation of, the foundation of my book. And then I looked at archaeology. I looked at other old Irish manuscripts. I looked at studies of Celtic religion. And so, um, as, as far as writing books go, it was—I mean—it was a joy to write. It was—it was—it uh, was so much fun uh, to do. But it's very much based on the primary evidence of Patrick's letters for as, as much as possible.
1: Did you find him to be a joy? And I ask that because. Of the number of biographers that over the years I've interviewed, I always like to find out how it is they have felt after writing about someone long gone um, and doing the research that they've done, whether they still like the person or not.
0: I do, actually. You know, I like him because of the faults uh, that uh, he reveals about himself. He was a man who struggled greatly with anxiety and with depression and with failure uh, and it, it just weighed on him so heavily, uh, but he kept pressing on, and he kept going forward. Uh, he's a very human man. When you read about Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great, sometimes it's very hard to know what kind of a person this was. But when you read the letters of Patrick, you come away knowing that this is a man who has scars, the man who's been through pain. Uh, and you and it's because we all have uh, and it's easier to relate to him so yeah i came around i came away from him
1: very much wishing i could have known him but when you are talking about the letters philip freeman there are only two and you have them in the book
0: they are only two and i did translate them in the letters uh, in the book and they are yeah they are the foundation of the book, but uh so i I, I looked at them and I you know I, I I you know looked at what Patrick said about women. I looked at what he said about pirates. I looked at what he said about everything and and then built the book around those two letters. yeah,
1: tell our audience now about the letters, where they are, uh where they are now, what still exists uh from the standpoint of the original documents and all of the translations since then. Give us a history of the letters.
0: Well, the two letters, the first one is called the Confession, and the second one is called the Letter to the Soldiers of Caroticus. We do not have the originals. But then again, we don't have the originals of anything from the ancient world, whether it's Caesar's Gallic Wars or the New Testament or anything. So everything is a copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, But we have some very early copies that date to about 800 uh, A.D. So uh, that's still maybe about 350 years after Patrick, uh, but we have some very early copies. So I think we can reconstruct the letters and get a very accurate sense uh, of what the originals said. Uh, and I've I've looked very carefully at all the manuscripts, and I th- I think I've done that. Um, and they are in, uh, as I said, one uh, copy is at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, there are some in London. There are some in Paris. Uh, there are some scattered around France. But they are uh, very good sources, uh, and they date from about eight hundred to about one thousand a d uh, and they preserve um, they pr- preserve these two letters very well
1: How accurate though have the translations been
0: i think uh, I think there have been a number of good translations, and certainly I don't claim that mine is better than anybody else's uh, but I think they've been pretty accurate uh actually I think they've been pretty good uh and and, and you know for anybody who wants to read. The Letters of Patrick, you, of course, can buy my book, but uh, you can also find them, uh, I think they're even available online if you want to, uh, but uh, I can't think of any bad translations that are out there uh, that, uh, that, you know, decent scholars have done.
1: How do they differ, the two letters?
0: The translations? Yes. Oh, no, how do no, they no. differ? Well, no, the, no, the, the, no.
1: How do the two oh. letters differ, uh, the one from the other? I was reading the translations sure. in your book, and they're dramatically different.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting that the, the first letter, the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, uh this is written, it's a shorter letter, and it's written to these soldiers back in Britain when Patrick is an old man. And what these soldiers have done, uh, Carodocus and his soldiers have come over and kidnapped some of his converts, some of his Irish converts. They've kidnapped some. They've killed others, and they've taken them back to slavery in Britain. So it's a reverse, really, of what of what Patrick went uh, through as a young man. So Patrick writes a letter to the soldiers of Caradacus, and just uh, it tells them. Uh, you cannot do this to your fellow Christians. This, you, are, you are going to burn in hell uh, if you don't give these people back. And uh, it's a dramatic, forceful, uh, fiery sermon uh, that he gives in, in that short letter. The confession is actually something different. It's a much more humble letter. Uh, it's, a, it's a declaration of his faith, but it really tells his story. Uh, and uh, what's happened is he's gotten in trouble with the, the bishops back in Britain. And they have called Patrick back to Britain to stand trial uh, because of this unknown sin that he committed as a young man, because they don't like him, they don't, they're jealous of his success for whatever reason. And so he writes a letter and he explains to the bishops and everybody else that he's not going to leave Ireland, that he's given up everything to, to, to preach the gospel there. Uh, and so he tells his life story uh, as he's doing It's it. absolutely fascinating stuff. Uh, And and so you you get two letters with very different tones to them.
1: I'm going back to Ireland in October, and uh, I don't know that even for an island that's only 300 miles long and 150 miles wide, this tiny speck in the ocean. I don't know that I could ever visit enough to be able to say that I've seen it all or that I've experienced (laughs) it all. And I don't say that just simply because of my heritage. Uh, It's one of the most beautiful places I have ever seen in my life. Uh, But what about you? How many times have you visited?
0: Oh, I've been there at least a dozen times. I was just there last week. Uh, It's a gorgeous place. And uh, we flew into the Dublin airport and uh, you could see the snow on the tops of a few of the highest mountains, but mostly it's very green. Uh, it's a it's it truly is a is a beautiful green place where cattle and sheep can graze year round. Uh, the mountains are gorgeous. The cliffs are gorgeous. Uh, the beaches we walked. It's been a whole day just walking along a beach outside of Dublin. My wife and I did, and it was it, it's a it's a wonderful truly magical place, which is a word that I you know don't use that much, but it's it's a truly magical place.
1: I have told people that the first time I ever flew. Into Ireland, that the green below me, looking out the plane window, there was only one comparison that I'd ever had, and that was Oz in the MGM movie, <laughs> that kind of emerald yeah. green. Uh, but as long as yeah. we're talking about Ireland now, uh, and we are talking, after all, about the author of St. Patrick of Ireland, we haven't forgotten you, Patrick, uh, but Philip Freeman. I would love to know, and I think our audience would like to know, about your reflections on the Irish people. Uh, it's very interesting to me that there are such diverse images. Some people think of them as angry drunkards constantly get into conflicts in pubs, and and, uh, and others as the friendliest people involved with hospitality 24 hours a day. You talk to <laughs> me and all of us about the Irish people that you know by way of their very yeah. nature.
0: Well, I think uh, the Irish people I know, there are probably a few angry drunks there in <laughs> Ireland, but most of the people are, are truly, <laughs> truly wonderful. Um, the uh, <laughs> the Irish, they are friendly, they are warm, uh, it's one place you can go if you're from uh, from America. You can go, and they absolutely love Americans. Everybody has a cousin in Boston or Chicago, uh, and, and they speak uh, English. Uh, it's not the easiest English to understand, by the way, but it, it's uh, it's great, and they're very friendly. And they've been through so much in their uh, in their history with the famine uh, in the 1840s, with the the struggles with the British and uh, the the Irish. Uh, it's wonderful uh, in America. We uh, we say when we leave some buddy, have a nice day, uh, and you know, which is a very good thing to say. But in, in Ireland, they have this wonderfully, cheerfully pessimistic sort of outlook, and they'll say, good luck. Uh, and so that's, you know, the good luck in facing the troubles of life. Uh, but um, I was there, uh, as I said last week, and uh, I was interesting, you know, just talking about the coronavirus and the threat uh, that that uh, posed. And they, you know, they were concerned and they cared, but they, you know, it was just one more thing. Uh, for them to deal with, and they weren't going to let it get them down. The pubs were still crowded; uh, the people were still having a wonderful time. The music was still playing, uh, and so uh, it's a sort of place that's cheerful, even in, in the best of in the worst of times.
1: And some of the worst of times came during the famine, but also when they discovered that the Irish, during that period of time, after the turn of the century, the twenties in the United States when so many of them, by the hundreds of thousands, descended on what they thought was finally the solution to everything, and that is the promise of America only to find signs in the windows of our urban communities saying, please know that there's a job here for everyone except the Irish. Or the apartment buildings, apartment buildings saying no Irish need apply. Uh, That kind of bias lasted for quite a while.
0: Oh, it did. There was a tremendous prejudice against the Irish in America. Uh, and yeah, no Irish allowed. And it, you know, it wasn't all that long ago. Uh, but uh, the Irish came looking for a better life, and most of them found it. But they did struggle. They were uh, they were looked down on by the uh, the, the, the the other people, the British, uh, the English who were here, who looked down on them as as you know, dirty Irish, as Catholics. Uh, So they really didn't want a whole lot to do with them. Uh, But, uh, of course, the Irish have done very, very well in America and Canada and Australia and everywhere else.
1: But these were white people with blue eyes, for the most part, looking like everybody else. And most of them spoke some form of English. Why that kind of terrible bigotry that existed for some time?
0: Yeah, it's I think... It was just a carryover of of what the Irish had been through for four hundred years with the British, with the English, uh, who had looked down on them and had treated them terribly. When when the Irish were starving during the famine in the eighteen forties, Queen Queen Victoria said, "Well, you know, maybe there'll be fewer of them to deal with." But why did uh, Americans why of,
1: did Americans take up that kind of of uh, prejudice, that kind of cruelty? Uh, Because they didn't necessarily know how the Irish were treated in Britain. Was it because of the immense number of Irish coming in to Ellis Island?
0: I think all of a sudden, yeah, I think all of a sudden they thought they were being flooded. Uh, with these uh, foreign people, even though they looked very familiar. I think also the Catholicism of the Irish, Ah. even though not all the Irish who came over were Catholic. But I think there was a great prejudice against the Catholic. Uh, uh, They thought they were being overwhelmed by papists. Uh, And America, uh, at least the people who were running America, were uh, pretty much all Protestants. Uh, And so they they didn't like to see that many Catholics coming over. So I think it was a religious prejudice as well.
1: Isn't that interesting? We forget that that took place during a period of time when an entire state was allocated to Catholics if they choose to live in Maryland.
0: Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: And that was why the name,
0: right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, It's... um, It's a very interesting time to look back on. And then we go further back, of course, into the 400s and the life of St. Patrick of Ireland. That's the name of the book, a biography by Philip Freeman. Uh, When he went back after having escaped the slave traders and made it back, I, I can't even imagine during that period of time the efforts that it must have taken to get back to his people, in Britain and, uh, and then to get healthy again uh, and to put the slavery behind him. He then decides to go back as a missionary. And when I was reading that, I was thinking about the missionaries that we have here, not those that necessarily go abroad, but the evangelists, the televangelists, the people who use social media, in order to um, attract great numbers to their faith. Um, do you know anything at all about St. Patrick's style of missionary work? Was he a fire and brimstone guy?
0: Well, the, uh, his letter to the soldiers of Caroticus is certainly fire and brimstone, but I, I get the feeling reading Patrick that he was much more of a quiet, uh, sort of slow, behind-the-scenes one-by-one uh, one, uh, sort of missionary, uh, not leading, you know, not climbing up on the Hill of Tara and leading thousands of people in prayer, but but going from home to home and farm to farm uh, and talking to individuals. That's really more of the picture that I get about Patrick and his missionary style.
1: Tell us more about Philip Freeman's friendship with Patrick Uh a biographer well, a biographer gets so close, and you had such limited contact by way of his writings and the direct uh, historical, Patrick. What kind of a person is he to you, Philip Freeman?
0: Well, I, I admire him very much. And one thing about him, if you read the letters, they were written, he wrote them in Latin, but Patrick was kidnapped when he was about 15 years old, and so he missed part of his education. So he writes the letters in a, in, in a good Latin, but not a great Latin. And it's, it's, it, you could see somebody, you can feel them struggling with the language, and, and he always feels very inadequate about his, himself and, and his struggles, and he's very apologetic for his, his uncouth language. He tries so hard to write well. Uh, you, you see a, a humble man. Uh, a man who has been through a lot of difficulties. And I think, you know, since everybody in this world suffers so much and goes through so many difficulties and and hopefully overcomes them, that uh, if you're looking for a patron saint, Patrick is a pretty good choice uh, for somebody who's been through the really hard, hard times of life and come out on the other end.
1: But it's still not logical, nor is it clear to me. As an Irishman, why... Patrick, when we know so little, when we absolutely know so little about him and his background, and it was so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago, in a time we can't relate to at all, why he has captured the imagination of so many, particularly here in America. Philip, I ask you that as a guy who has been In many St. Patrick's Day parades here in Phoenix, Arizona, (laughs) and thousands and thousands of people lining the streets. And I'm talking about Latino families, African-American families, European families that have nothing to do with Ireland at all. What is it about this guy?
0: Well, honestly, I I think the people celebrating don't really know a whole lot about the historical Patrick. It's a a chance to celebrate. It's a chance to have great music uh, and all of that. But I I, I really don't think most of the people who celebrate St. Patrick's Day really know that much about the historical St. Patrick at all. And that's okay. They don't need to. Uh, but, uh, But why? I don't know. I really don't know why.
1: Well, I was hoping you would, that you would finally be the one who would answer the question (laughs) that I've had all this time. Because, you see, I'm asking on behalf of the millions of Polish people here who have fabulous (laughs) food, great music. I mean, after all, the polka is a really fun dance to do, and it's a happy kind of music. But St. Stanislaus gets nothing. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, or Saint yeah Saint Benedict of Nursia in Italy, and, and yeah, you don't celebrate these guys, but but Saint Patrick, he really does. And I think honestly, a lot of it has to do with the numbers and the enthusiasm of Irish Americans who are just glad to share their heritage and their music and their culture, their food, uh, with uh, all the other ethnic groups here in our country.
1: And it's a pretty happy music. There's not too many dirges uh, when you go into no. a pub.
0: <laughs> no. No, it's wonderful, wonderful music. And and when all your listeners, whenever they go to Ireland and, you know, go into a pub and uh, especially in the small towns and villages of Ireland, that's the center of community life. That's where it happens. Go into the pubs and have a drink and talk to people and listen to the music. Uh, and, uh, and, And that's how you will find the real
1: Ireland. Here's a story, Philip, that I've never told on the air in the 172 years that I've been doing this program. Uh, I visited the cousins that I was talking about that uh, had the shoe store. The father had the shoe store in Limerick. And I was visiting them, and they said, "Uh, let us take you over uh, to this delightful little cafe uh, that our other cousins have, uh, have had for a number of years. And I looked at the sign above the entrance to the cafe in this little village outside of Limerick. And the name of the restaurant was spelled like this T H I S L L D O U S all together as if you had it in social media. Lowercase, no spaces. And I figured out hmm. the name of the restaurant was This'll do us. <laughs>
0: Oh, goodness, goodness.
1: (laughs) Well, it's that kind of subtle Irish warmth that just said, we're doing fine, we're doing okay, and it may not be the fanciest place in the world, but this will do us. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, it's a wonderful place to go. I'll never forget that. So St. Patrick, St. Patrick, let's close this program by hearing Philip Freeman, the world's leading authority on St. Patrick, at least on this show, uh, talk to us about the legacy that he left, Not, not what he did in Ireland by way of converting those that had been outside of Christianity and discovered it because of him uh what is his legacy outside of saint patrick's day and the music and the food and the songs
0: well i think his legacy to me at least is this wonderful story of his life and this window into a a man who lived 1600 years ago and uh and when you read the story when you read his letters I think people, if they look at them carefully, will find themselves. And to me, that's the legacy, not the dying the Chicago River green or anything like that, but the the legacy of a real man who struggled with terrible, terrible difficulties in life, but uh, through who, through his faith, came through uh, and and gives us a, a great example, a great story from the past.
1: When are you going to go back to Ireland, Philip?
0: Oh, I don't know. I don't have my next trip planned. Uh, I've got but, to I've got to figure it out. Maybe maybe next year.
1: But you are going back, aren't you?
0: Oh, I always go back. Always. Why? Because I I love the people. I love the place. I love the layers of history, from the you know the Neolithic tombs to the the the, the little huts in the west of Ireland to the the beautiful mountains and forests. It's just a it's a great place to go. Uh, it's a, it's just, it's a wonderful place to be.
1: Well, I can only tell you that you've spent this past hour with a lot of us around the planet, many of whom are either Irish or want to be. And I appreciate you and the work that you've done in putting together a marvelous biography, Saint Patrick of Ireland. Meanwhile, this is the God Show, and I'm Padraig Macmahuna. That's the way you say my name in Gaelic.